0: Welcome to the Everyday Neuro podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Janine Cooper, and I'm aiming to provide you with the knowledge and inspiration to understand the fascinating world of the human brain. In today's episode, I'll be discussing the topic of stroke. Although I will be covering factual information as in all podcasts, my main reason for wanting to focus on stroke is due to the impact that it has on an individual and their family. So today we'll be looking at stroke from the viewpoint of those who have been affected by it. I'll be talking to my friend and former colleague, Cassie Watson, about her father, Paul, who had a stroke in 2015. As you'll hear from Cassie, Paul's stroke was far from typical and she courageously provides us with insight into the impact that his stroke has had, not only on his behaviour and abilities, but also other members of his family, including his grandchildren. To do this topic justice, I felt it best to deliver it in two parts. In today's part one, we will discuss what is stroke, what to look out for if you think someone might be having a stroke, and what treatment is given to limit the effects of stroke. I'll talk to Cassie about how Paul's stroke was diagnosed and what it was like to live through this traumatic event as a family. In part two, we will hear about Paul's recovery, who Cassie describes as her hero, and the journey he and his family are making to support one another to create a positive future. We will then learn about the latest rehabilitation and innovation that's available to offer support to people living with stroke to enable a better quality of life. So I'd like to begin by introducing you to Paul, an award-winning journalist who is working on his master's qualification at Cambridge University at the time of his stroke. Paul is dad to Cassie and her siblings Greg, Claire, Sarah, Teresa and Gabby, and husband to Joan. In 2015, whilst chatting with younger daughter Gabby, Paul suddenly stopped talking, started to slur his words and began to slump. Gabby alerted her mum who called the ambulance. Gabby thought that Paul was dying as he held her hand trying to comfort her. Unbeknown to them all, in the time that it takes to flick a switch... Paul was experiencing the first effects of having a stroke. But what exactly is a stroke and how can we identify the signs? Let's gather some more information about this. So stroke is a disease that affects the arteries, also known as the vasculature, leading to and within the brain. A stroke occurs when a blood vessel that carries oxygen and nutrients to the brain is either blocked by a clot or bursts. We can also use the term ruptures. As documented by stroke.org, 87% of strokes are caused by a clot obstructing the flow of blood to the brain. And in many cases, this is due to something called atherosclerosis, which basically describes a fatty deposit that lines the vessel walls. These are called ischemic strokes and essentially result from a lack of oxygen-rich blood flowing to the brain that then eventually causes neuronal death. Another cause of stroke is when a blood vessel breaks or ruptures, and this prevents blood flowing to the brain. This is an example of a hemorrhagic stroke, and they account for approximately 13% of all strokes. Now, should you like even more information regarding the types of stroke, then I've provided a link to stroke.org in the show notes. And for more information about the regions of the brain, then you might like to listen to episode one of this podcast series. Now, in Paul's case, the emergency services were contacted and attended within 10 minutes of the stroke event, a response time that you will soon discover can be life-changing and saving. However, at this early stage, it wasn't clear that Paul was having a stroke, as his symptoms were what we call atypical. So, is there such a thing as a typical stroke? Well, often it takes place rapidly, and for some there are very visible signs that can inform an observer that a person may be having a stroke. The acronym FAST has been developed to help with recognising such signs and to guide people to take appropriate action. So, let's have a look what FAST stands for. The F stands for face drooping. A stands for arm weakness. S stands for speech difficulty and T stands for time to call emergency. Now these typical symptoms that are the focus of most public awareness messages and pre-hospital stroke assessment tools are actually the hallmarks of what we call a middle cerebral artery or MCA stroke. The MCA is the largest vessel branching off the internal carotid artery and the most common cerebral blockage site. Now, this is what Paul was later diagnosed to be experiencing, and it's the most common cause of ischemic stroke. If the main stem of the MCA is affected, this is known as a complete MCA stroke. Whereas if it affects the branches, then this is known as a partial MCA stroke, and there is usually damage to a smaller brain territory, resulting in less severe disability. In part two of this episode that will be released at the end of September 2019 we will discuss the impairments that stroke can cause when we talk to Cassie about her dad's diagnosis and how the stroke has affected his abilities and his lifestyle. As I mentioned earlier, time is of the essence with stroke and the speed at which a patient receives treatment can be crucial to their recovery and survival. And often the phrase time is brain is used by people working in this field. This is highlighted in a systematic review of the stroke treatment literature by Jeffrey Saver and I've put two links to his work in the show notes. Jeffrey suggests that a typical patient loses 1.9 million neurons each minute in which a stroke is untreated. However, there does appear to be a window of opportunity to attempt to reverse the effect of an ischemic stroke. So let's now look at this in some more detail. After the initial thrombus or blockage occurs, an area of tissues that are ailing but still salvageable exist and they're called the ischemic penumbra. To save this region and its associated functions, a treatment called thrombolysis is required and administration, if it's possible, is time dependent. Estimates between three to six hours of the initial stroke event show favourable outcomes. So what exactly is thrombolysis? Thrombolysis is a treatment that uses medications to break up and dissolve blood clots that are blocking veins or arteries. The medication can be administered through peripheral veins, but more commonly it's injected directly into the area of the clot formation by infusing the medication into a catheter that has been introduced into the affected artery or vein. Urokinase, streptokinase and tissue plasmogen activator or TPA are the main medications that are commonly in use. These medications are all enzymes that help the body's natural process dissolve the area of clot formation. So they're pretty amazing but they can also be very dangerous and I'll talk about that shortly. Now I've linked you to the Home of Vascular Surgeons Australia and New Zealand where this information has come from and in the show notes you'll see that that link provides you with a comprehensive summary of what medications are used in thrombolysis However, as in Paul's treatment, not everyone can receive thrombolytics and I'd like to tell you why. As stated by Brian Bledsoe, an emergency medicine physician and paramedic in his 2017 article, if administration of thrombolytics takes place without obtaining a correct diagnosis of the type of stroke, then the patient could be in extreme danger. So imagine that a patient has had a hemorrhagic stroke, so a bleed to the brain, rather than an ischemic stroke. Well, if you then add a blood thinner to that patient you can imagine that this could be fatal. According to Brian the only way to determine with any degree of accuracy whether a stroke is ischemic or hemorrhagic is with CT imaging of the brain and even then it's not really 100% accurate. So the decision to administer thrombolytic therapy to patients who are candidates for this treatment is really dependent on the interpretation of that CT image of the brain. Because it's going to be unwise and even dangerous to administer thrombolytics to stroke patients without a CT, strategies have been developed to try and decrease the time it takes to make a definitive diagnosis. And so the idea of a mobile stroke unit or an MSU with a CT scanner in the actual unit was introduced... The idea of placing CT scanners in an ambulance and taking the scanner to the stroke patient was first introduced in Germany, and it was found to be really successful in treating stroke patients within the first hour of those initial stroke symptoms. And the first mobile stroke unit in the United States was launched in Houston, Texas in 2014. And since then, approximately 20 MSUs are now in operation across the US. And I'm fortunate enough to live in Melbourne, where there's been an MSU since 2007. 17. It's part of a five-year pilot project, so it's going to be really interesting to read those results when they become available. So what exactly is this mobile stroke unit I'm telling you all about? Well, as stated in a recent article by ID Moad, MD, an MSU really is a large ambulance and it's equipped with a mobile CT scanner, as I said earlier, and this kind of obtains the -the on-the-spot brain imaging that patients require to be able to know whether to administer certain drugs and to give certain treatments. A mobile stroke unit also has laboratory equipment telemedicine capabilities and high-speed wireless transmission of data so that doctors can quickly determine whether the patient is a candidate for emergency stroke treatments such as thrombolysis. Thus, the MSUs, along with rapid responses from observers, are actually helping to improve the time to treatment of stroke patients. But even then, not all are candidates for thrombolysis, as was the case for Paul. So let us now listen to Cassie's account of her dad's stroke and gain insight into what it was like for Paul's family to go through the traumatic event of stroke. Cassie, I'd like to start by saying a really big thank you for joining us today and for sharing your dad's experience of stroke. I know your family have been through so much, so I really do think it's courageous that you're doing this today for us. Again, thank you. No, um,
1: thank you for having me. I'm uh, hopeful that some of your listeners, if not all, um, who maybe are going through this can get some kind of comfort or um, yeah, take on
0: something I'm saying. So I'm happy to help and thank you for having me. Cassie, I've told the listeners that it was your mum and sister Gabby that were with your dad at the time of the stroke, and he was able to be taken to hospital very quickly. Can you tell us a bit about his diagnosis, please? Yeah, so when it actually was happening, um, my sister,
1: I mean, she she wasn't sure it was a stroke, but she knew something was going on. And when mum called the ambulance and they came, they were of the same opinion that we think it's a stroke, but we're not sure. When he got to the hospital, which all happened pretty quickly, They, again, were saying they weren't sure, but it looked like he was having a stroke and they took him for a CT scan immediately and basically with how dad was... Looking, they were like, we're, we're pretty certain it's a stroke. There's not much point transporting him to Melbourne because it's quite obvious the damage has been done, and we can see that through the CT scan. And then when he had the MRI, which was the next morning, it basically showed what they were thinking all along that he'd had a, a massive stroke and started, I guess, um, the treatment and things from there.
0: Okay, so what information did you receive about your dad's condition at that time?
1: Look, at that time, so it was it was in the evening so it was quite late it was around 10 o'clock by the time we were all um, at the hospital and there was the lead from memory the specialist there um, neurologist who basically was saying it's a stroke but we didn't really it was really difficult because dad didn't fall into the usual (laughs) stroke patient kind of thing and so it made it difficult for them to really diagnose exactly what was going on and we had it uh, one of our sisters, um, Teresa, is a nurse and so she was really helpful and good in providing, I guess, some more of the information on you know, the things we didn't understand but it was extremely confronting and when they couldn't really ascertain exactly what was going on, it made it a bit more scarier but I think had we been told exactly what had happened there and then would have been a lot harder to deal with. And I think maybe not knowing exactly what was going on, you kind of think, oh, he'll wake up and it'll be okay.
0: My goodness, it must have been extremely stressful. Cassie, would you mind telling us what it was like at that time for you and your family?
1: Yeah, look, for me personally, it was um, (laughs) really awful. I was pregnant at the time with my first child in my first trimester and I had to drive with my husband from Melbourne to Ballarat, not knowing what was going on. And we all didn't really um, understand. And I think when we all got there and seeing dad the way he was, completely unresponsive and horribly, horribly confronting um, and extremely scary. um, And I think With my dad in particular, he'd survived, you know, a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and it was like we all knew something, this wasn't the same and um, even now thinking back to then, it's, you know, my heart is racing thinking of, you know, when, when we got into the emergency room and he was so unstable and remained that way for quite some time and yeah, it was as a family together, we're very strong. My sister Claire said it quite perfectly, you know, as a family, we're really good but I think individually we all fell apart at various times because it just was so, just came out of the blue in many ways. And seeing someone who usually is so strong and healthy, I guess, just lying there completely unaware of and in no control of their you know, body or mind is, um, I think to this day, still quite unsettling for all of us.
0: Cassie, at that time in hospital, what support did you receive and was there anything additional that you look back on and think that would have actually been really beneficial for me and my family? It's hard because when we, when we talk about it now,
1: my, I've got four sisters and a brother and my mum, we often think would it have been better if there'd been someone there, there and then to say this is the blood clot treatment which can in most stroke cases can, you know, help straight away, but they didn't know what was going on. And if we'd given that to dad, it may have had, he may have died, you know. And, but then we think, would it have made a difference, you know, to us mentally if being, having someone there to say, yes, do this. And then what if it went wrong? You know, what if it went right? And I think it's, it's really hard, Janine, because you, you think in hindsight, you want to know everything. Yeah. And you want to get the best possible outcome. But then when someone can't say exactly what's going to happen and it's someone you love very much, you, you know, do I or don't I? And I think the Ballarat-based hospital couldn't do any more than what they did. And the people that were there were amazing. You know, it's one of those things where... Particularly with this particular treatment, you've got a small window of opportunity, and by the time they, you know, been able to diagnose exactly what was wrong with Dad, it was too late to give it to him. But even then, they're like, we don't know whether it would have done anything because the damage had already been done so significantly to Dad's brain. So personally, I think every now and then, would it have made a difference having being a regional hospital? Why, why isn't there like a little stroke team there that has all the support network to help families like this? Is it because it's regional? You know, if this had happened in Melbourne, would it have been different? You can't have the top people everywhere all at the same time. Yes. And, and that's, that's hard to deal with.
0: It must be an incredibly difficult situation to be in, Cassie. How did your family cope with all of the stress and uncertainty? Um, well, I think as my other sisters said,
1: we we're, we're still are coping. So yes. it's, yes. Um, you know, it's <sighs> – we're a very strong family. You know, my sisters and my brother are my best friends essentially and we've, we've always been close but this um, really – and still does, can get completely overwhelming. And I think you just need to keep going, essentially. And, you know, we're very lucky that dad's still with us today. You know, a different dad to what we had prior. But, you know, everyone, I think the days when my sisters or my brother wasn't coping or my mum, I could be strong and vice versa. And dad's got 10 grandchildren. And at the time it happened, he had, I think, six, seven. My sisters listening to this might be (laughs) going up. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we had uh, young children, you know, under the age of, of six. So, you know, that was of great comfort to us as well and kind of kept us all going because they didn't really understand what was going on. And so we had to keep living and keep doing things to a certain degree because of them. To this day, that's still quite a comforting part of our lives and a massive part of dad's therapy even now.
0: We will be returning to talk to Cassie in part two of this podcast about stroke, where she'll be sharing with us the effect that stroke has had on her dad's abilities, especially to communicate. I'll explain some of the likely neuropsychological issues that can occur due to stroke, such as aphasia and apraxia. And Cassie will offer us insight into how humour and the grandchildren have helped in Paul's recovery and to build resilience for the family. So I hope you can join me for part two, when I'll be going over over rehabilitation and innovation that's currently available for people living with stroke. But until then, please take incredibly good care of that wonderful brain of yours, and I'll see you again soon.